90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Deep in midterm season. Still? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know. My midterms were spread out in between the, my classes. It's probably dumb of me, really, because it just ensures that I have great tests to grade, you know, basically every other week. It either prolongs the grading or it means you don't have one mega grading week. That's true. That is true. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to grade this exam. My co-teacher is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of a blessed hour of silence while everybody's taking it. <laughs> this is one of the best part of giving an exam. It really is. I know everybody's like, do you need me to watch it? So you can, no, no, I want to sit in there because no one will bother me. <laughs> so I remember <laughs> in a, a math class during my undergraduate degree, <laughs> during our final a professor stapling packs of papers together. I guess it was exams for another class or something. Oh. So you'd be taking your final, and about every 30 seconds, you just hear, boing, the stapler <laughs> bouncing. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I love these exam stories. I, I used to teach with somebody um, who he said he would talk during his exams. And so he'd sit there and be talking like while people were doing stuff and people would start to be getting increasingly agitated. And he was teaching a, <laughs> a forecasting class and he finally, some girl stood up and like started reaming him out. And he said, how are you going to perform when you have a tornado warning to write? Do you think it's going to be quiet for you to write that tornado warning? You have to, you know, all your concentration will be put on there no it won't so get over it in this exam <laughs> i thought Ouch. it was amazing yeah he got into a lot of trouble but i thought it was the best thing ever when are you ever gonna have you know i mean yeah you can sequester yourself away when you're doing projects at work but if you're doing a job like that you need to learn how to deal with some stress true but i try to be respectful of students when i'm giving an exam uh, on the flip side of that, it's also when I get the most, you know, paragraphs of a paper or email pounded out as well. Right. No. Oh, oh yes. I would not. I would do nothing to <laughs> derail the serenity that I get while watching <laughs> people take an exam. So, right. yeah. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't jeopardize it. But I always thought it was a funny thing that I think about a lot. And it's like, mm, yeah, that is true. But that's probably a whole nother show. Or dealing with all of the times where people come up and say, I don't think we have enough information to answer this question. And you go, oh, you're right. Uh, yeah, I um, I printed off my 30 exams this morning and noticed where I left out four blanks that I'm going to have to explain. I'm so angry. That was yeah. two, actually it was three. It was three people proofread it and we all missed it. Whatever. It wouldn't be an exam without the turn to page four. <laughs> Put this right. in. <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, it'll be a great morning because I'll be all by myself with just me and my email while everyone's furiously scribbling away. Yeah, it'll be the first time you've checked it in, you know, a few weeks. <laughs> 
I'm trying to make not checking your email the new norm because email's terrible. It's terrible. I didn't sign up for this overlord. <laughs> I mean, I did, I guess, but <laughs> I digress. <laughs> we digress, yes. So this week we're going to do part two of last week's show, which was plate tectonics and the climate. Right. So sorry, everyone who wanted this show to come out before your test. <laughs> sorry. Hopefully you studied these last 12 slides. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to the fun part last week, right? The answer to everything other than the sun. Volcanoes. Volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. And these bad boys, yeah, they go into the, the categories. So to recap, for last week, we talked about basically the amount and location of land. And there's a whole show's worth of stuff, it turns out, <laughs> dealing with where your land is and how much land you have. And then the rest of this, man, volcanoes. They, they take care of business when it comes to heating up or, or cooling down the atmosphere. Oh, yes. So volcanoes put lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. In fact, the most potent couple of greenhouse gases, the most potent of which is, well, water vapor. Everyone always forgets this. Yeah. Like, no one ever is like, oh, yeah, everyone's like, CO2. No, man, it's water vapor. That's the best greenhouse gas. We just happen to have this cycle where we you know, shuck the water vapor out of the atmosphere called rain. <laughs> right. And we actually had a listener send me an email saying, is it possible that all of the evaporated water from forced pumped irrigation on fields to grow our food is contributing to global warming through introducing water vapor? And I said, well, probably not. Uh, I think it's a relatively small flux, and it's a flux that's mostly taken care of in our lower atmosphere water cycle. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But volcanoes shoot these gases way above the lower atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that's where this whole twofold part of volcanoes effect on climate comes in. And this is where in class I would talk about the layers of the atmosphere if you didn't know what they were. Um, because, you know, weather happens in the troposphere because of our temperature gradient, right? You heat up a parcel at the surface, it goes up. If it's still cool around it, it keeps rising. Great. Thanks. That's the sun part that answers all the other questions. <laughs> but right. once you get to the stratosphere, you invert the temperature and it gets hotter as you go up. So if you can get something into the stratosphere, and in this case, from a volcano, it could be water vapor, it could be CO2, it could be ash particles, um, and all kinds of little aerosol -y things. Once it can shove it up into the stratosphere, it just kind of hangs out there in the tropopause stratosphere layer. And that's where the bad news is. Right. So we've got lots of incoming solar radiation, lots of UV, lots of IR. We've got things that are going uh, through, hitting the earth, and then coming back up and getting trapped by these mm -hmm. exactly that's the greenhouse part of it folks <laughs> right. um so if you've got all that water vapor and co2 getting it trapped in there but then you can also the twofold effect 
initially, all those aerosols that volcanoes spew up into the air basically just reflect sunlight back out. And so you're not getting, it's before you have the chance to accumulate all that IR and UV and everything else, um, reflecting that solar radiation straight back out causes the, the climate to cool. But this is on the term of climate variability, not climate change. So if we look at these things, you know, climate is the average of something over 30 years. Okay, great. Uh, climate variability is sort of that decadal to maybe century, but mostly decadal changes that can happen in climate. You can have like really cold years like the Dust Bowl. It was really dry and it was really hot for that roughly decade. Okay, that's climate variability. That's not long-term climate change. And so the cooling effect that happens because of volcanoes falls into climate variability. But the warming effect, definitely climate change. Right. And so, so you get these, you said these aerosols, which is the fancy word for bits <laughs> of rock, ash, tree, deer, whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. that uh, get blown into these tiny pieces and way up into the atmosphere. Those things will circulate around and out over that years-ish scale. Mm-hmm. But the CO2 and the water vapor hang around for a lot longer, producing a net warming from the volcanic activity. Right. And, I mean, this cooling can be pretty big, like Pinatubo and some of the other big ones. I mean, it's cooled, like, up to 4 degrees C for a couple of years. It's been enough to cause uh, famine and crop failure in Earth's not Earth's history, but in human history. And, you know, I've said this before, uh, not on the show, but we were talking about it earlier, actually. If you don't think a couple of degrees is a big deal, <laughs> think about the last time you had a marital fight over <laughs> the thermostat. <laughs> why can't... Uh, I would say, why can't men and women just feel change or feel temperatures the same? But we actually did a fun paper about that a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll reference that and move on. <laughs> so this th- this influx of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere largely ends up occurring around plate boundaries because that's where we get volcanoes. Right, exactly. See our mini plate boundary shows and the types of rocks that you form there. Um, so not all plate boundaries make volcanoes. Um, continent Continent collisions don't make volcanoes. But basically everything else does. So whether you're in extensional or convergent, not transform, you got volcanoes. Yeah. And the amount of that volcanism is what's going to dictate how much CO2 you're spewing into the atmosphere. So your mid-ocean ridge is basically all volcanoes, right? And you got to fill up that CO2 in the ocean and then you start spewing it into the atmosphere. You know, the same thing for subduction zones you generally always have volcanoes along those and ocean ocean subduction tons of volcanoes it just doesn't quit (laughs) right um (laughs) but there are also volcanic things that can happen not associated with some of these major tectonic boundaries right and so this is where i mean even though they're not associated with plate boundaries they're still plate tectonic driven And this is where you can start to get large-scale climate change. Because, I mean, you've always got plate tectonics going, almost since the beginning of the Earth, 
not quite, but somewhere in the Archean, we started up our plate tectonic machine. And so volcanisms always happened at those different boundaries. I think it's when you combine volcanism and these other things that are more sporadic in Earth's history, like flood basalts, that you really start to change climate on terrifyingly large scales. So when you say flood basalts, I think, okay, basalt, a type of rock, flood, a bunch of it coming out in liquid form. Mm-hmm. Yep, and well, that's it. <laughs> what, what is the driving mechanism here, though? Um, so, and this is something that we should talk about, but I always don't want to because we don't know much about them. And so these are mantle plumes or hot spots. So these things, you know, originate super deep in the mantle. It's just like the weather. It's the same physics. You've got this sort of ultra hot piece of magma and it wants to rise and it rises up and it usually finds a thin spot in the lithosphere, wherever that is. And it can start to just spew stuff out. And as it keeps spewing, right, the plate is moving, but the hot spot or the mantle plume isn't. And so the plate moves along and it just keeps spewing out these floods and floods of lava. And this is a lot of lava. It is. But when you said that we don't totally understand this process, uh, that's very true because the second you said mantle plume, (laughs) A session at a conference somewhere in the world instantaneously happened with people fighting about whether mantle plumes exist. Exactly. (laughs) I was hoping you'd have something to say about that. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely true. We can't even talk about what the thing is called, where it originates, why it happens. Do they exist? Are they connected between upper and lower mantle? Are they not connected? Do they Mm -hmm. evolve over time? Is it just one spot at the surface or do you have, are all multiple spots at the surface fed by a single hot spot down below and it just branches off as it gets closer to the lithosphere? Are there multiple hot spots all the way down? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know anything about it, which always, 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 every year, prompt somebody in my class to be like so what do we even know then like why do we even science <laughs> well the mantles are really a hard thing to image <laughs> <laughs> i know i always have to give props to geophysics at this time which makes me feel icky obviously <laughs> yeah i mean we're, we're looking at relatively small features in a big body of mostly the same stuff exactly I mean, and we're trying to look at it from the surface. I mean, it's worse than breaking your glasses and not being able to see anything more than fuzzy outlines. <laughs> it's, it's like, like breaking <laughs> your glasses, not being able to see fuzzy outlines behind a lead wall. Exactly. In the dark. Exactly. <laughs> In the dark. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and I mean, I think that's exciting. That's that's why I science. Um, so I think it's really cool. Not something I work on, but it's really neat. But we need to get this, and we don't yet. When I say really big, I mean really big. (laughs) So big that they get this ridiculous name (laughs) called, I love it, called Lips. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And everyone calls them that, so that's not just some dumb thing I made up. Um, So these things, these huge... Flood basalts are called large igneous provinces because obviously when they dry up, lots of really crunchy rock, tons of it, 
No, I mean tons. Um, so there's a bunch of these all over the world. Some of them that you might have heard of are the Siberian traps or the Deccan traps. And we call them traps. I think this is really cool. Um, it's just like you said, John. So they just flood out, just kind of ooze out their basalt so they're not super eruptive, right? So they're just oozing out all over the surface over and over and over again. And they make piles of rock. And they're called traps because trap is a Sanskrit word that means step. And as these things flow out and cool, and then another pulse of it flows out and cools, they make topography that looks like steps. Interesting. I did not know the origin of that. Yeah, I didn't know either for the longest time. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's super neat when I figured that out. Um, and so I mentioned those two. The Deccan Traps and the Siberian Traps, and we'll get back to that. Um, but there are lots of other flood basalts around. Um, the Columbia River Basalt, so if you've ever been to Yellowstone, the hot spot that is feeding Yellowstone has blobbed out kind of a large igneous province. Um, and it's, it's fairly big, but it's nothing compared to these other ones. And so... <laughs> and it could cause some serious global climate ramifications. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have ashfall from that hot spot in Oklahoma. So, yes. <laughs> uh, we would be in trouble if that happened. But when you talk about the Deccan Traps, it's one of the largest ones in the world. It's more than 2,000 meters thick of just these flatline basalt lava sheets. They're just sheets stacked on each other. And they cover over half a million square kilometers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not even it. That's where they are now. But these things erupted at the end of the Mesozoic. And they say that it probably covered as much as 600,000. Or, sorry, 1.5 million square kilometers. And it's just eroded down to half a million now. Uh-huh. <laughs> An incredible amount. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. So the size of it now is like the size of Washington and Oregon together, and so it's was potentially three times that. Um, and that volume of basalt, which is just, it's dumb. It doesn't even, like, it doesn't even compute, really. It's 512 cubic kilometers. And for example, or for um, illustration purposes, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, produced one cubic kilometer of volcanics <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> uh, so real big right <laughs> so six hundred thousand cubic kilometers of volcanics but then we've got these siberian traps which are obviously in northern russia and they Happen. So the Deccan Traps happened at the end of the Mesozoic. So the Siberian Traps happened at the beginning-ish of the Mesozoic. Um, and was about the same size, a little bit smaller than the Deccan Traps. And I mentioned those two because what happened during those two time periods? Well, there were some extinctions. Some big extinctions. Um... We always want to say that the dinosaurs got killed by this bolide, right? So this big meteor, Chicxulub. Well, that is Chicxulub today. Um, but probably the eruption of this lip here in India, the Deccan Traps, is probably what killed the dinosaurs. Um, 
through climate change. Though it's very possible that that eruption was triggered or influenced by Ebolite. So I love that because the Deccan traps are on the other side of the earth from Chicxulub. And so some people think that they actually got started because of that. It's like that Bolide punched the earth so hard it caused it to volcano on the other side. <laughs> it sounds like a line at a roadhouse or something <laughs> that's know. slightly modified. <laughs> and this is the importance of like figuring out. I always wondered why we cared so much about like the exact timing of Chicxulub and the extinction and stuff. And this is why. Because, you know, did that seriously happen? Like, why did the Siberian traps go? Because we don't have a bolide impact that uh, corresponds with that um, extinction, which that was a huge extinction. And we'll get to that here here in a minute when we talk about the oceans, because that's the one that really got killed by that. Um, so, yeah, so you don't just... It's not just these volcanoes at hotspot boundaries. It's these large igneous provinces that are erupting tons of stuff and that tons of sort of extra stuff on top of the active plate tectonics we already have is still spewing all the CO2 into the air and thereby warming the climate. Right. Yeah. But to start transitioning towards seafloor things... Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Blag hypothesis, which we've talked about on here before. Right. I just hate it. The Blag hypothesis. So Berner, Lazaga, and Garrels came up with this. That's the Blag part of the Blag hypothesis. And I mean, it's really related to this, right? So they say that seafloor spreading rates are the ruler for driving CO2 release into the atmosphere. And it's not just from seafloor spreading, right? That's the mid-ocean ridges. So it's not just the volcanism at the mid-ocean ridges, but what's happening on the other sides of the continents from the mid-ocean ridge. That's your divergent boundary. But you're subducting on that convergent boundary, say like the Pacific Ring of Fire, right? And you're making volcanoes, but what kind of rocks are you subducting? So you're subducting seafloor carbonates. Exactly. Carbonates. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So through subduction, you're starting to melt all these guys. You're adding all that CO2 back into the mantle that's being spewed out on the overriding plate volcanoes. So you're kind of like doubling down on CO2 release there. And therefore, that's what runs CO2. So the other side of that is we're weathering silicates to get all this stuff into the ocean and therefore sequestering carbonate or sequestering CO2 rather in the oceans through that process. Exactly. So, so yeah, we're erupting it, but we're sequestering it too. Right. And, and, and these are the two. So this is the blag versus the Chamberlain or the Rudiman hypothesis. And when you want to weather something, is it easier to weather pointy mountains or a large flat plain? Well, the uh, the slope is a big factor, so the pointy mountain. Exactly. So if you have a lot of high areas, so high in elevation, and a lot of uplifted areas through plate tectonics, right, continent-continent collisions, um, you're going to increase weathering. weathering. And as we talked about last week, if you have lots of pointy mountains 
near the equator, you're really going to increase weathering because you've got all that lovely rainfall to make it weather, right? And so you start to break up these silicate rocks. And just like you said, so great. Rain is acidic, right? It's naturally acidic. We make it worse. Humans do. But rain combines with CO2 to make carbonic acid, H2CO3. Great. It has a pH of about 5.6-ish. And rocks don't like that. <laughs> and no. so that carbonic acid weathers rocks. Great. And it makes bicarbonate ions, clays, all kinds of stuff. So if you're adding this carbonic acid and water to silicate minerals, it goes into this stuff. All that stuff can weather, gets put down into the seawater, you rip it parts as ions, and it becomes, just like you said, limestone, CaCO3, plus a lot of CO2 and water. And it all gets stored for a long time. This is part of the long-term carbon cycle uh, in the seafloor as that limestone. So which one's moving faster, really, is the point. If you have lots of high areas, these steep slopes, um, lots of high elevations, you're going to increase weathering and you're going to increase CO2 sequestration. And when you talk about these two different things, you have to talk about whether these are, you know, um, positive or negative feedbacks. So that's that Rudderman model. You're going to increase weathering and take CO2 out of the in, out of the environment. Okay, well, if there's less CO2 in the environment, you're not going to do as much weathering. And therefore, it kind of slows itself down, right? Right, it's rate limited. Right, exactly. And so sort of the same thing. I mean, the Blag hypothesis, if you have low rates of seafloor spreading, you're not putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. So these are both interesting. And like all of geology, probably both of these are responsible for the CO2 thermostat, there's probably not one thing you can say is the ultimate driver. Right. And the, the rates change throughout time and they are also significantly lagged. Yeah. So one rate might change, but the other might not see the effect of that change for hundreds of thousands of years. Exactly. It takes a long time to sequester CO2 from the atmosphere into a rock on the ocean floor. Right. It takes seconds to erupt a volcano and put CO2 into the atmosphere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I say this all the time when we talk about like man-made CO2 is, is just that, you know, I don't say this all the time. Everyone does <laughs> is that, you know, what are we, the culprit of putting CO2 in the air by man is the burning of fossil fuels. And so you've produced this imbalance in the carbon cycle because it took millions of years to put that CO2 into rocks and it's taking seconds to release it. And I still find it great when one of the, the yokels was erupting and they had to shut down air traffic around it, around <laughs> that volcano, that that was a carbon negative because the volcano put less CO2 into the atmosphere than all the planes the that normally planes. would have been flying in that area. Ah, ah. Oh, the irony. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> and terrible, but also funny. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've been talking about the uh, the hard physical science processes, because that's what we like to do. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the squishy sciences play a role in this too. <laughs> I'm totally gonna use that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So um, I did this today. We were talking about rivers in class, and I said, what would you name the things you're going to sit there if you're a good scientist, you're observing about a river? And biology was like the second thing. And I said, I don't care about that. (laughs) 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 That's not what I'm talking about. Um, But we can't forget about this because all this CO2 isn't just in the atmosphere. It's in the oceans, too. And, you know, we've talked about the carbon cycle already. Um, I think we had a show or two on it. We could always do another one. Um, and the biosphere plays a role in where the CO2 goes and gets sequestered to. And, I mean, the easiest one is, like, plague tectonics creates environments where plants can live, right? Yeah. So do you have high plains or sides of mountains or uh, yeah. lush river valleys to tie into another show? Exactly. And this all goes back to where's your land, right? Because if you got all the stuff in the equator, lots of rainforest, and you're putting that carbon away, you know, and you're adding all this CO2. So plants sequester CO2 as well. It's like a medium part of the carbon cycle in terms of time. Um, But I said we'd get back to this when we talked about the Siberian traps. One of these things that you hear a lot about when you talk about climate change now is acidification of the oceans acidification of the oceans right and so when we put so much co2 into the oceans we're not putting it in rocks you can't put it into rocks fast enough that causes a lot of problems for the biosphere it does and my chemistry on this is a little bit fuzzy but i believe the end product is carbonic acid in the ocean right (laughs) yeah right exactly Mm -hmm. it's just that Water plus CO2 yields H2CO3. Uh-huh. Right. And so that's happening now. And uh-huh. it's making things acidic fast enough that life in the ocean can't really adapt to it. Exactly. Uh, but this has happened before. <laughs> so the Siberian traps that we spoke of earlier, putting all those, you know, hundreds of things thousands of cubic kilometers of igneous rock and with that igneous rock tons of co2 being spewed literal gigatons um so when you prime up the atmosphere it's gonna get dissolved into the oceans into that top layer of the oceans and at the end of the permian about this time um 96 percent of life in the ocean died that's that's a lot it's huge 70 percent of life on earth on on land and 96 percent of ocean life died which creeps me out to think that the vast array of things we have in the ocean came from only four percent you know of what was there in the permian that's nuts yeah and the other problem is so we killed off a lot of plants which we said sequester co2 uh-huh. And we killed off a lot of plankton and things that also sequester CO2. Uh-huh. So now there's less things sequestering CO2. So the ocean acidification gets worse, which kills more of the things that were sequestering CO2. Yep. And this is a really nasty positive feedback. Exactly. And so this is where the role of these like events, like these large igneous provinces, probably play a huge a huge amount in these events because that has to stop eventually 
something turns off the switch on this hot spot mantle plume that we don't understand you know and then we can start to get back but otherwise you're just stuck in that positive feedback cycle which is what's really scary about the amount of co2 which you know why wouldn't we try to limit it just because you don't want to get stuck in that cycle man you don't want to get stuck in that roundabout you want to exit the roundabout <laughs> right i mean the earth does cycle quite mm-hmm. a bit but there are also if you're looking at a chaotic system there are also things called strong attractors which are places where you can get stuck forever right exactly so. that's how planets die <laughs> yay <laughs> and this is where my students are always like god this class is so depressing <laughs> but uh but yeah so if we understand these things we can better understand how things not associated with plate tectonics can affect you know the climate system too and one of those things would be us exactly right <laughs> Yes. The last time I checked, I was not a plate boundary. (laughs) Yes. Contrary to popular belief, we are not actually (laughs) geologic formations. Uh, I'm definitely a hotspot, though. (laughs) (laughs) No explanation to what I do. Who knows? Two days in a row, I'll check email. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, nobody knows if you exist. So true. I like it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, I think it's time to switch to something totally different and definitely not depressing, which means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Um, this was ridiculous. So thanks to listener Daryl for sending this in. <laughs> um, it, it is cows painted with zebra-like striping can avoid biting fly attack by Kojima et al. <laughs> There are a lot of people on this paper. There are. Uh, <laughs> I imagine it takes quite a few people to paint stripes on cows. That's exactly what I hoped to. <laughs> um, and I've never seen... Now, this is in PLOS One. Um, I've never seen a yin-yang sign for contributing... Authors contributing equally to the work. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. It's great. <laughs> Um, this builds on a lot of other work, which was surprising, about biting flies and what they like to land on. Yeah, so apparently striped surfaces throw off these flies' visual systems mm-hmm. because as they're approaching from far away where they can't really tell that they're stripes, they're flying full speed like normal. They're ready to go do some biting. <laughs> Uh, but as they get close, they actually end up not being able to land because their visual system is so messed up by the stripes as long as they're about five centimeters wide. Or, yes. you know, two inches for those of us in Yankee units. <laughs> um, this is crazy. <laughs> so they literally took these cows and painted zebra stripes on them. They did. And <laughs> in a very... This is something that I feel like in the the physical sciences, we maybe wouldn't do so much, but they said, well, we need a control. We we agree with that. Okay. So they had an unpainted cow. Mm -hmm. They needed their test cow. So they painted white stripes on a black cow Mm -hmm. with an airbrush. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, and to make sure it's not something about the fact that there are stripes and not the color contrast, we need to paint black stripes on a black cow too. 
<laughs> so that one was real weird. That was a weird one that I wouldn't have thought about. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. exactly right. <laughs> I would have thought striped cow, black cow. Not black cow with black stripes. Which just looks like a wet cow. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> a preferentially wet cow. <laughs> and so they use this term in here several times, which this is jargon. I'm sorry. Uh, they used a three by three Latin square method. Yeah. Yeah. So are you familiar with Latin squares? No, I, I meant to look this up. Okay. So <laughs> a Sudoku is a Latin square. Okay. That's what I figured. It can't have the same elements in a row multiple times or in a column multiple times. And this is just in relation to the observing of the flies on the cow. No, so this was, they what had was six cows. Mm-hmm. And so two cows were unpainted, two cows were painted with black stripes, and two cows were painted with white stripes. Um, no, it, basically it's sort of like doing the Sudoku of when they rotated these. Like when they rotated, the same cow okay, didn't gotcha. have twice. When they rotated the cows, yes. Uh-huh. It's basically just making an experimental matrix to do this. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Um. And- it was weird. This happened over two years, too. I don't know if it's really hard to paint on cows or something. <laughs> yeah, so they, they would uh, put them uh, twice a day for 30 minutes, uh, tie them so they couldn't roll them all around the field, but they still had plenty of room, so they were happy. Uh-huh. And they would take a picture every minute for 30 minutes, and in the picture, they would count the number of flies on the body and on the legs. Uh-huh. And the observer would have to note every time they like shook their head slapped with their tail their skin twitched they stomped their feet the classic get off me fly behaviors (laughs) which are categorized which i love (laughs) yeah and so uh, they did this multiple times and they didn't really see much of a difference between the cow with black stripes and the control cow (laughs) i'm not gonna say i'm surprised there yeah Uh um but the black and white cow treatment had 50% fewer biting flies on the animal. So I have a lot of questions about this because if the black and white stripe contrast messes up how they see stuff, how did they get any at all then? Maybe some of them were just adept. I guess so. That's very interesting. I have lots of questions about the airbrushing of the cow too. (laughs) Like, did they put tape on it? These stripes look real weird. It says that they were hand, free-handed. I know, but there's no way you can freehand in those boxes like that. So, I, yeah, I, I shall, I shall call your attention to Figure One. <laughs> you look at this; it definitely there's some tape involved. But anyway, um, so fifty percent is really good, um, but the behaviors were different than that, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I like their explanation for it, too, even though it seems like a shot in the dark. Because the black and white, the zebra cows, had much more skin twitching than the other fly-repelling behaviors um, of the black or black and striped cow. Yeah, which I'm not totally sure what the deal is there. Maybe it's a species thing for the flies. Well, no, it's said that skin twitching is the least energy using fly repelling treatment and so because they had so many less flies they didn't do the other things like you know head shaking or whatever but they just did skin twitching because they still had flies so they just did that one 
energy saving fly get off of me than, okay. the, than the other ones. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and you can download the original data yourself as an Excel spreadsheet. Uh-huh, or plot it in Excel just like they did. Yep. <laughs> uh, and look at this on your own. But the, the point of this was, well, this doesn't involve chemical treatments to the animals. Mm-hmm. And it's very inexpensive. <clears throat> yeah, because um, they were talking about the paint was just, you know, nip-on paint that they just bought down at the store, and it doesn't hurt them at all. And so that's super great. And it said in um, previous studies about this, you know, you don't want to use pesticides if you want like organic meat and all that jazz. And it's just bad in general. But even if even if you weren't opposed to pesticides, um, it said it took like less than 10 years and flies become they basically evolve resistance to them. So whatever, even if you're willing to use them. They just don't work after a certain amount of time. And so this gets rid of that whole evolutionary thing for the flies because you're not using the pesticides. It's just messing with their visual acuity. Right, which maybe would be adaptable, but certainly not on the same time scale, I wouldn't I wouldn't think. think so. Yeah, I wouldn't think so either. And it's very, it says there's a bunch of, this makes me want to read them, actually, <laughs> a bunch of... Um, other studies about, you know, the width and amount of the striping. And so it's like, it has to be a lot of stripes messes them up more than a few stripes. And the size of the stripes has a big deal to do with it too. But it also said polka dots messes them up. And I want to see that cow. Of certain sizes. Yeah. So uh, this made me wonder, you know, those towns that have like concrete cows around and artists decorate them every year for a contest. <laughs> Maybe we should just have the artists decorate the real, real things. Real cows. That's exactly right. I love how you said the researchers counted this because you better believe this is a job for an underground. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here, kid. Sit here and take a picture every minute. <laughs> cool. And then you're going to go back and count the number of flies in each picture. <laughs> exactly right. Good luck if those flies are on the black part of the cows because that looks real hard to do. It does, where they have the arrows and saying fly here and fly here. Oh, you have I to know. really I, look. I know. I zoomed way in. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this looks terrible. Um, but that's real cool, though, because I didn't realize how much damage, $2 billion in the U.S. caused by biting flies. That's how much the damage is on livestock. So this is a huge deal. Yeah, and maybe all you need is a can of Krylon. Exactly. And some... <laughs> you need this big cow-shaped zebra stencil and oh ex- exactly and just run them through right just have it constantly spraying it's like de-icing the wings on an airplane <laughs> exactly <laughs> i gotta know yeah you're gonna have to build that john <laughs> and sell your cow zebra fine machine <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome for making you your first million <laughs> Maybe even hundreds. (laughs) Oh, this is great. Thanks for sending that in. (laughs) Yeah, that was was awesome, Daryl. So (laughs) if you've got some data on how painting zebra stripes on yourself has deterred (laughs) biting fly techniques during your summer outings or field expeditions, Ah. or if you've tried this on your own livestock and would like to report your results, Shannon, how can they send that data in? 
Oh, please send us your zebra cow pictures. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, occasionally we're hanging out in the Slack chat room. Come find us. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us doing what we're doing. If you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.